as I've said, that we are, we are called to build something together. Not just a worship gathering to come to once a week, but something much, much greater. Building the ecclesia, the church, the people of God. We've been talking about how church is not a building to go to. Church is a people. Matter of fact, the idea of ecclesia, as I've mentioned many times, but I want to make sure I'm going to hit it again and again and again until we see it played out and see it manifested. Ecclesia was a term of a meeting of governors. There was a meeting where the governors of all the provinces and all the places came together to meet to get basically orders and ideas from the, from the emperor, the king, or the, the, the top guy, and they would go and they would steward and lead their provinces that they were governing over. It's the same idea that Jesus came and said, hey, I'm going to build my ecclesia. I'm going to build my meeting of governors. So what church is, is not something for you just to come and get a good sermon or to get good worship in. This is the place you come for God to show you specifically what you are called to go govern with in the following week. This has got to shift from we're coming to church because we're in the South, or we're coming to church to get a good word, or we're coming to church to get a message. We're coming to a meeting of governors to get strategic plans to govern the rest of our week for the glory of God in this area. This is not meant to be a I'm coming to get something from Kyle. It's I'm coming to get strategic strategic plans from God. This is the meeting of the governors of this area. We are not going to be pushed around by the enemy. We're not going to be pushed around by false governors. We are going to lead in a new way. Amen? Y'all awake? Okay. 1 Corinthians 3 actually tells us, and it's not up there, so just listen to me. If you're going to go anywhere, go in Haggai chapter 2. But 1 Corinthians 3 actually tells us that we are building a foundation that Jesus laid. That the building is not so much this. The building, according to 1 Corinthians 3, is the people of God. So when we say we're building the church, we're building who? We're building the people. We're not building a thing. We're not building an organization. We're not building a nonprofit. We're not building an LLC. We're building a people of God. When you, and when you start to see a foundation that looks like Jesus... Hopefully, the people of God will say, hey, I want to build on that. And that's why we're here. Not to change a foundation of Jesus, but to build on the foundation of Jesus. We're not here to be uh, a, a, a church that is trying to be culturally relevant. We're trying to show the culture why they are, why they are totally not relevant to what God wants to do in the earth as it is in heaven. We are not to been to meet cultural standards, rather we are to meet a kingdom, heavenly standard for the culture to see. And we are to build this church, the people of God, with a specific design through certain materials. And throughout the scripture, we see a pattern of God simply desiring to be present with us. And this is where I want to go tonight. I'm going to talk a little bit about the history of the dwelling and the presence of God on the earth. In Genesis chapters 1 through 2, we see obviously that God created a people and he created a people to dwell with him, to bear his image. There was no need for a temple structure in Genesis 1 and 2. There was no need for a building. There was no need for a tabernacle. There was no need for any of it. Why? 
Because in Genesis 1 and 2, man, and when I say man, mankind, man and woman, was with God, dwelling with God, walking with God, talking with God. They were one with God. Wouldn't that be an incredible thing to literally be in, the, in, a, in a tangible presence of God, seeing him, walking with him, talking with him, and they were totally one with him? I actually believe that that's accessible for today. If you think the only time you can get in the presence of God is Saturday nights at 6, you've got a very small idea of who God is. He wants us to dwell with Him. Unfortunately, at some point, Adam and Eve both chose rebellion and they became disconnected, destroying this idea of oneness and dwelling place with God, right? So years later, God still has this heart. I want to dwell with my people. I want to walk with them. I want to be with them. I want to tabernacle with them. So the slaves have been in, uh, the, the people, they, the, uh, God had been enslaved to Egypt for 400 years. They were disconnected from that, their identity as God's people. Moses led the people out of Egypt, and God says, I want you to build something. What was it? He said, I want you to build a tabernacle. The dwelling place literally is what tabernacle means. It was a tent structure serving as a place for God to dwell in the midst of his people. Just like the reality of the garden. He said, you have exited the garden, but I still want to dwell with you. I still want to walk with you. I still want to be with you. So he says, let's, let's tabernacle together. So he gives Moses a very specific structure, a very specific design. They start building, and that's where we see the, 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 the idea of the courtyard and the, the, the inner court, the holy place, the most holy place, all those things. Very specific design with very specific materials. A few hundred years, and, and eventually, a few hundred years later, because uh, basically uh, King Solomon, David's son, came to replace this tabernacle with a permanent structure called the temple. You ever wonder tabernacle, temple? Tabernacle was the tent, the one they could break up, tear down. But then there was a temple. It was a permanent structure that would always be. It was, it was referred to a lot of times as Solomon's temple. It took him seven years to build. It's kind of appropriate, seven being the number of completion. It took him that long to build it. And the people would worship in this temple a very specific design that God gave David but for some reason, David couldn't build it. We'll get into that in a little bit. But he said, your son Solomon is going to build the temple. Very specific design. It wasn't just get any wood. It was a specific wood. It was a specific metal. It was specific stones. It was very specific. And the people would worship for the next 400 years, bringing daily offerings to this place for God. Because it was a place God dwelled with them. And at the end of Solomon's reign, because of his indiscretions, the people losing faith, they were bringing idol worship into the kingdom. That temple would eventually be what? Destroyed. So you've got this pattern since Genesis of God dwells and then it gets destroyed. God dwells and then the dwelling place gets destroyed over and over. What's funny is you know who God sent to warn the people that the dwelling place would fall if they didn't get in line? They would send a people or a person called a prophet. 
That's why you see all through Scripture, if you read your Bible, you have like, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, you have Haggai, Zechariah, all these, all these major and minor prophets because God was trying to warn the people, if you don't get correct, if you don't get back in line, the dwelling place, the place where I can be is going to crumble. I feel like that's almost where we're at in 2023, that we're getting to this place where we're either going to tabernacle with him or we're not. And there's a lot of church organizations who proclaim the name of Jesus that don't know how to dwell with them. And there's going to come a time where that's going to get shaken. I believe, And we're, we've been talking a lot about shaking lately, and I'm going to get into that. There's going to be a shaking. I believe there already has started a shaking going on of who is actually here to dwell with me and who is just here to make themselves feel better about their crappy week. Right? Nothing wrong with you've had a crappy week and you're here to, to, to feel better and, and, and get better. But the goal is I want to get what I need to tabernacle, to dwell in the presence of God, not just at Relentless on Saturdays, but every day of the week no matter where I go. And in what we call a fellowship, many people tend to have an issue with the gift of prophecy and we're more uncomfortable with the gift than getting comfortable, comfortable with building a relationship with people that you look at as weird. Well, they're talking on behalf of God. What's weird about that? Well, I don't know if it's real or not. Then pray about it. What we talked about last week, fellowship. Do not come to me saying you're discerning something if you're not willing to build the relationship off the discernment. Why is God giving you a discerning spirit? So you can know how to appropriately engage, not disengage. Okay, okay. Over and over... For some reason, we're rejecting the voice of God when he's trying to get us back in line, and there's tension, right? We build churches, and things happen. We get involved with churches, things happen. And the temple is getting destroyed. The dwelling place of God has becoming a social club where if people do not meet your personality standards, we forget to tabernacle. We forget to walk in a dance with God. This temple that Solomon built for that purpose is destroyed, and years later, another temple is started to be constructed. Now, when this temple was being laid, we see that in Ezra, the people were starting to weep and praise at the same time. If you read Ezra, actually, it basically describes that the people who were seeing the foundations laid for this new temple, there was so much crying and so much praising that you could not differentiate between the two. That's called ugly worship. I wish sometimes we'd get some ugly worship. Amen. You know, we, we, we get too comfortable in our worship. You know, like we're singing songs and, you know, it's, it's like we're, we're coming to receive. We, we come in the church and it's, you know, you know uh, what song do we sing tonight? Abba, I belong to. That doesn't seem like you really believe that. Right? And I know I'm picking on you a little bit. This is, I'm trying to loosen you up. Don't worry. I'm not judging you maybe a little. But it, we're, we've, got to, we've got to get to a place where we are giving God our all. Right? Well, these people are just weeping. And they're praising. Why? Well, if you look back at Solomon's temple with what they remembered, Solomon's temple, they had walls and floors of cedar. Two angels carved out of an olive tree with wings that stretched forth across the inner house, which is interesting because that's exactly what it looked like on the Ark of the Covenant. The temple that God built to dwell looked like the thing that he dwelled in. 
So he's not going to dwell on a thing that doesn't look like what he gave the design for, right? So it, 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 there was carved walls and cherubim, palm trees and flowers, very much like the garden. Y'all see the tie-in? There was gold everywhere, gold chains, altars, floors. It was all laid in gold, luxurious, glory. There was even manifestations of fire and smoke coming from heaven in this temple. It was amazing. And when the people saw the foundations being laid, they remembered that temple. And you know what they started weeping and praising God for? They were like, oh my gosh, we want that again. And we're building a foundation and it can start again. They were getting excited that what they saw in yesterday, could it be that they're going to see it again today? They put an expectation on we want that again. Solomon's temple was beautiful. There was miracles from heaven. But they were comparing the building of a new thing to an old thing. Because they wanted the things of yesterday instead of the possibility of something they have yet to experience. And where we are at in the church is we are at this crossroads of do we want to experience the things we've seen in the Bible, in revivals, or are we willing to say there's something that we have yet not experienced that may not be written on the page but looks like the page? Jesus says there's things that I, can't, that I cannot write on these pages because there's not enough to contain it. So don't contain the miraculous to what's written on the page. But the miraculous should look like God. Amen. Right? So they're getting wrapped up in the old. And, and God's like, I'm, get, I'm building something new. I want to do something new. So with this new temple, they're crying. They're weeping. They're wanting the things of yesterday. And all of a sudden, this prophet named Haggai comes on and says, I've got something to tell you. And this is what God says. And this is what he says in Haggai chapter 2, verse 3. Does anyone remember this house, this temple, in its former splendor? How in comparison does it look to you now? It must seem like nothing at all. They're looking at the foundations of something, comparing it to what they've seen. And he says, y'all remember what you're seeing? You remember what you're getting wrapped up in? This must look like nothing compared to that. But let me remind you people, the thing you're wanting to happen again, it didn't stand. Yet you want it again, do you not think that God can do something greater? So a few verses later, this is what God tells him to the prophet in verse 9. The future glory of this temple will be greater than its past glory, says the Lord of heaven's armies. And in this place, I will bring peace. I, the Lord of heaven's army, have spoken. He says, you are putting an expectation on this new thing of what happened yesterday. But what's going to happen with this new thing, this new dwelling, it will be greater than everything you've remembered. And if I can just get real, one thing that the Lord is really starting to show me in my personal walk, in my personal time with God, is the church is obsessed with Acts 2, and God says, I've been there, I've done that, I want to do Acts 75. Is that okay? I want to do something new. The glory of the dwelling place on earth now will be greater than you've ever seen. You see, Herod 
was actually the one building this new temple. Which is kind of funny because Herod wasn't a believer. He was actually remodeling it into something greater, but he was following the plans of Solomon. And he was totally ignorant to what he was doing because what he wanted to do, he wanted to build the temple so he could get glory, not realizing that when, you, when he's building it according to God's design, God's the one who's going to get the glory. And if that wasn't enough, this temple that they were building was the one that Jesus was praying in when he came onto the earth. That alone in itself gave it greater glory. Would you agree? And the modern church is obsessed with building a temple that looks like Acts 2, but I say the Holy Spirit is wanting to do something greater in the temple, the people of God that we saw manifested in its past or former glory. So in the verses before verse 9, when he talks about this greater glory, talking of this future glory of a new temple, I want you to look at what God says in verses 6 and 7. This is what the Lord of heaven's army says. In just a little while, I will again shake the heavens and shake the earth, the oceans and the dry land. I will shake the nations, not just some, all, and the treasures of all the nations will be brought into this temple. I will fill this place with glory, says the Lord of heaven's armies. What was God shaking? He was shaking the present order of things. He was shaking status quo. The word shaking actually refers to the overthrowing of foreign occupants. Some of y'all got it. The word shaking came from a term meaning to overthrow foreign occupants. And the results of this shaking will be the filling of God's temple with a new level of glory. His new thing, or what we commonly refer to as new wine, cannot come until he shakes the heavens and the earth. In Hebrews 12, even, it says he will shake it one more time. There's a shaking coming, and God is looking for a people, or what he refers to as a remnant, who will embrace the shaking so that all the foreign occupants of the temple called church leave True sons and daughters are revealed, and we start building this thing as it truly is meant to be built. The church has too much foreign occupants, and I'm not talking about people. I'm talking about ways and idol worship even that we're not even aware of. The church has embraced idol worship with preachers. I put forth to you anyone that says, I can only receive from this preacher, you have made that preacher your golden calf. Because if the word of God spoken, my scripture says that when the word goes out, it never goes out null and void. So if you don't receive something, you weren't listening for the word. You were listening for the tickle of his or her voice. I'm getting, getting there tonight. There are foreign, foreign occupants in the church. There's ways that he never intended. And he says, I'm going to shake it up to get it back to its pure form. And if I may go there, I really and truthfully believe one of the new levels of God's glory in the church will have nothing to do with spending buku's amount of money on a building. I, I, I really believe it. I think I've been distracted a few times. Can I, can I be vulnerable? I think I've been distracted a few times with the promise of could we get a huge building 
Could we do this great thing? I believe God's saying what I'm wanting to do, you're not going to need a building to do it. Can I just speak vision I saw years ago that I think I've wavered from? Something? Is it okay that even the preacher can get back in alignment? I had vision years ago that we would build a people that would fill up Forsyth Park to where we would never have to buy a building. That's the true ecclesia of shaking out the four. What's the foreign occupants? You need a good building for the presence of God. You need a good stage. You need a good sound. So I, you don't need any of that. Right? I think we've got to get back to the idea that God wants to do something that far exceeds the current level of glory and it's not going to look like it. The only foundation is on Him. The, 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 there, there's all these words, there's these prophetic words right now about a shaking coming. I believe the shaking's already happening. We need to say, God, identify the foreign occupants. Well, what do we build with? What do we do? In the next verse in Haggai 2.8, he says, God says, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, says the Lord of heaven's armies. In other words, he says, I have all the resources you need to build my temple. And we don't need to look at what we don't have. We don't need to look at, we don't have enough people, we don't have enough tithing offering, we don't have enough uh, people on the team, we don't have this. What we need to start looking at is we need to get on our knees and seek him in the midst of the shaking, before the shaking and after shaking, and saying, God, what do you have for us to move forward with? For far too long, I believe the church, I don't know why I'm talking about this so much tonight. Is this resonating with you guys? I think for far too long, the church has been obsessed with literal resources that we can grab with our own hands instead of depending on resources that we grab by the hands of heaven. We sing songs like Let It Rain, and we don't really understand what we're singing. God says, I've got all the resources you need to do a new thing. So maybe some of the foreign occupants is you depending on resources that you already have. Okay. The temple, its glory was greater than Solomon's, but it too would eventually be destroyed. Why? Because the temple eventually becomes a place where people used it for profit, for themselves, a place of religion, a place of religion. You know what religion is? A foreign occupant. You know, what, you know what churches trying to be profitable is? Foreign occupant. What did Jesus do? He, he, he took some time. Let me make some whips. And he went into the temple and he said, get out the foreign occupants. Get out of here. He took the whips after the sheep, after the cattle, after all the tables. He threw the tables over. Jesus went like, you know, like man status up in there and just, you know, not that women aren't strong, but you get what I'm saying. I, you know, I got to be PC these days. And, but he, 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 just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. He went in there and he started throwing tables up. He started taking, he said, no, 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 this is not what my father's temple is for. Get out of here. And when Jesus came, this is what the scripture says in John 1.14, the word became human, made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. We've seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. That word, made his home among us, is the same word for dwelling as in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. So in other words, when Jesus came, he restored a Garden of Eden reality. He no longer needed a tabernacle or a temple to dwell, to dwell with us. The dwelling happened when he came on the scene, when the word became flesh. Yeah. 
In other words, when Jesus entered into this world, he brought back permanent tabernacle. A new glory came and dwelt among the people, not dwelt in a building. And there are still people more obsessed with the building than with the person. And when he was going to the cross, this is what Jesus says to the religious spirit in John chapter 2, verse 13. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration, so Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling, selling cattle, sheep, doves for sacrifices. He saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Jesus made a whip from some ropes, chased them out of the temple. He drove out the sheep, the cattle, scattered the money changers, coins over the floor, turned over their tables, and then going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Then his disciples remembered this prophecy from the scriptures. Passion for God's house will consume me. But the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you the authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. So you know what Jesus said? Okay, destroy this temple. I'll build it in three days. I'll raise it up. What? They exclaimed. It's taken us 46 years to build this temple. You can rebuild it in three days. When Jesus said this, his, when he said his temple, he meant his own body. Jesus was fulfilling the prophecy of, this, of that this temple will be far greater than what you've seen. They were still waiting on the glory of a building when the building was simply meant to be a place for the people to become the building, to become the dwelling place of God. And Jesus says, before I can fill this temple, I got to drive out the foreign occupants. You know what sanctification is? For God to fully dwell in every place of your life, you've got to drive out foreign occupants. That's why he says, be renewed by the, or I'm sorry, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Because your mindset has foreign occupants. The way you manage your money has foreign occupants. Can I just, I mean, if you don't tithe, you have foreign occupants. We'll leave that there. The way you pray for people could have foreign occupants. The way you regard each other. There are foreign occupiers in our life. And God says, for me to have it all, you've got to drive those out because there ain't no room for both. I want all of you. And a lot of us have a lot of parts. And together we come and we make up for each other's weaknesses, if you will, and shortcomings. But I believe we are not meant to stay in grace to say, oh, grace makes it okay for us to have the shortcomings. No, no. Grace makes a way for you to be totally righteous in the midst of your shortcomings. And our response to that grace is let's drive out all the shortcomings. Let's drive out the foreign occupants. Because God doesn't look at me less because I have them, but there will be a greater level of glory if I drive them out. You are as righteous as you're ever going to be. You are the righteousness of God, the scripture says. So it's not about how do I get more right. It's how do I look like I truly am. Scripture says you are perfected unto righteousness. You are a spotless bride. And Jesus says, I'm coming back for that spotless bride. So you want to know when he's coming back? When we actually start to look like we truly are, spotless. We are spotless, but we're embracing a lot of spots. Right? 
That, that I, we, we worked in recovery centers for years. I think for the first seven years of Relentless, we worked downtown in a recovery center. And we would go every Saturday and meet with, 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 with men, and we'd meet with women, and we'd give Bible studies, and they would all say the same thing, I am an addict. And we had to change their thinking. No, you're not. You dealt with an addiction. And I, I want to encourage you in that. It, stop embracing false identities. I'm addicted. No, you're not. You're dealing with an addiction. That is not who you are. Who you are is only addicted to one thing. Right? Just like angels singing holy, holy, holy all day and all night. That's our true self. And we have to drive out anything foreign to that. I'm getting off, I'm getting off a little bit. Is this okay tonight? If you want to go even deeper, if I, yeah, I'm there. John writes about heaven on earth in Revelation 21 and 22. The restoration of all things. How many of you cannot wait for the day that Jesus comes back, right? Restoring heaven on earth. You know what's something crazy about Revelation 21 and 22 when he talks about the restoration of heaven on earth? If you read chapters 21 and chapter 22, there is no mention of a temple. Matter of fact, let me just read. Uh, Revelation chapter, see, I said I never preached in Revelation, but I'm going there tonight. Amen. I believe it's Revelation chapter 21, verse, verse 22. Yeah, um, the 21, 21 through 22. The 12 gates were made of pearls, each gate from a single pearl. The main street was pure gold, as clear as glass. Interesting. Still the same metals being Use. Now listen to verse 22. I saw no temple in the city, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Amen. True restoration is we don't need a temple to temple. Because the Lord came and he dwelt where? Not in the temple. Not in the, not in the most holy place. But in this most holy place. He dwelt among us. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. He wants to dwell among us. And the thing is, he is. He's not just going to dwell fully in the end of times, but he's dwelling right now. That's why we can see breakthroughs and miracles and all these things. They should be our natural. But we still stand in awe when we see a miracle when it shouldn't really even phase us other than giving glory to God. But miracles have become so few and far between when really it should be a new level of glory where miracles are as common as water. Why aren't we seeing that? Because we're not driving out what? Foreign occupants. What's interesting is that Jesus started every day the same way. Constantly doing one thing. He was talking to the Father. Prayer. Genesis even. They didn't just walk with God, they taught with God. Solomon's temple even had a certain name. In Solomon, you know, Isaiah 56, 7, it says, I will bring them to my holy mountain of Jerusalem, will fill them with joy in my house of prayer. I will accept their burnt offerings or sacrifices because my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Last week when I mentioned that we are to be in fellowship the word fellowship came from a Greek word koinonia, which in the simplest terms simply means communion by participation. And part of the participation in a fellowship of believers is that we are all called to participate in prayer. 
Think about in Acts 2. People were getting saved. There was miracles. There were signs. There was wonders being poured out, meeting together, sharing meals, sharing possessions. People were enjoying the goodwill of the people. And if you look in Acts uh, 2, verse 42, I'll read it again. It says, All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, to fellowship, to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. Why did they devote themselves to prayer? The foundation they were building on was in the example of Jesus. It wasn't a concept they came up with. It wasn't, let's come up with five ways to build the church. It was, Jesus did it, it must be important. The last time we did this for, for 10 days, the Holy Spirit was revealed in the upper room. It must be important. Jesus modeled prayer in that he prayed about everything. You want to save yourself a lot of time when people come to you with problems? Ask them have they prayed and don't entertain a conversation until they do. Pastor Kyle, I don't know what to do. Have you prayed about it? Well, uh, uh, that's all I need to hear. Come to me when you talk to God. I guarantee you he gets better advice than Pastor Kyle. You know what my job is, really? It's not to give you advice. It's to help you discern whether the advice you get is Holy Spirit. Because he will speak to you. It's not an if. He will. He says, ask, and you will receive it. What is it? His answer, not yours. In Luke 6, we see that Jesus prayed all night before selecting 12 apostles. Can I be very honest with you? When we started Relentless, I can't say I prayed that amount of time about who I positioned as elders, which is probably why at some point I had to remove them all. Is that, is that okay? I mean, of course it's okay. God told me to do it. And they didn't leave because of it. It was just, I was, I was trying to get them to function in something they weren't called to. He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane asking for the Father's will. Your will be done, not mine. James 1.5 says this, If you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. He won't rebuke you for asking. You can never ask God for too much wisdom. Prayer is the key to wisdom. What wisdom? God, show us the foreign occupiers and show us what to do about it and what to do with the temple that you want to see. I think sometimes we spend more time binding and loosing evil spirits than simply getting on our knees and saying, God, what next and how? Is that, is that too much? Especially when you're in charismatic circles, you hear it all the time. There's a Jezebel spirit, there's a Python spirit, there's a this spirit, there's a this spirit. But what about strategy from Holy Spirit? Amen. Right? And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with calling out spirits. I think there's something very powerful in that. But it shouldn't be 90% evil spirits and 10% God was the strategy. Amen. <laughs> now, speaking of binding and loosing, spiritual warfare... When Solomon, in this great temple, is this making sense tonight? Okay. When Solomon, in this great, building this great temple, he, he built something that God dwelt in. They saw miracles. There was community. It was amazing. I want you to look at what God told him in 1 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. It says, King Hiram of Tyre had always been a loyal friend of David. Now, remember, King David 
David and Goliath, that David was Solomon's dad. When Hiram learned that David's son Solomon was the new king of Israel, he sent ambassadors to congratulate him. This is key. This made me dance a little bit when I was reading this. Y'all know what I'm talking about? That weird thing I do? I, I, when that happens, I know it's good. Then Solomon sent this message back to Hiram. You know that my father David was not able to build a temple to honor the name of the Lord of God because of the many wars waged against him by surrounding nations. He could not build the temple until the Lord gave him victory over his enemies. He could not build the dwelling place until the enemies were in submission. <laughs> Verse 4. I'm weird. But now the Lord my God has given me a peace on every side. I have no enemies and all is well. So I'm planning to build a temple to honor the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, or Lord my God, just as he instructed my father David. For the Lord told him, Your son, whom I will place on your throne, will build the temple to honor my name. We cannot build the temple of today. We cannot walk in a greater glory until the enemy is truly under our feet. And the thing is, he is. But we have to win the war in our mind and embrace that truth. Let me say it clear. Spiritual warfare is not about fighting a devil. It's realizing that the devil has already lost every fight and we need to embrace victory in every situation before it even plays out. I'm fighting demons. No, you're not. You're fighting, your, you're fighting what they're suggesting in your mind. They have no authority. That's why they're trying to talk to you. Spiritual warfare is do you actually believe that the battle is won? Because if you actually believe the battle is won, then spiritual warfare is easy. Nothing's going to shake me. God, shake it up all you want. I'm standing on your firm foundation. God, do I have foreign occupants in me? Shake me. Shake me up, buttercup. That's weird, too. It's, 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 it's not I'm fighting a devil. The devil's been defeated. Jesus said on the cross, it is what? It's finished. Is the, is the devil roaming around like a, like, like a roaring lion? Absolutely. Key word, like. He looks like something he's not. So what we do as Christians is we think we're in a spiritual battle with the enemy when really the spiritual battle is getting your mind in line with victory in Jesus. That's spiritual warfare. So you don't need to worry about the names of spirit and the name of demons and don't worry about it. It's Satan, the devil, Lucifer. It's simply this. I have victory in Jesus. Nothing is going to shake me. Oh, I lost the job. He owns the silver and the gold. The relationship is shaky. I can ask wisdom from him. Anything you need, he says, it's here for you. But we seldom ever pray about that. We seldom give prayers of, I can't handle it. When God's looking at you like, yes, you can. Because where you're weak, I'm strong. And I'm never going to let you do this alone because now you don't have to get to temple to dwell. I dwell among you. I've, I've got to get to church on Saturday. I've had a bad week. You can have church Monday through Sunday. 
The benefit of this is when two or more gather together, there is an agreement that brings us to a new level of glory. Right? Like, like you've had a hard week, they've had a hard week, they've had a hard week, and you're all fighting the battle in your mind of God's got this, the Lord has won, Jesus has won. And when we come together, the, the, in a, the agreement actually strengthens our belief in what we've been declaring all week. You know, like you're going through these spiritual battles in your mind and you're believing it, but then when you hear someone affirm it, you're like, okay, now I really believe it. That's how it's designed. That, that, that's the makeup of, of, of God. Is this, is, this, is this helping you tonight? I, I, I've been told lately that the Song of Solomon series was really theological and we need to get a little, more, a little bit more practical. And I'm like, you know what? I, I think that's right. We, like, we've got, intimacy is important. We've got to have intimacy with God. But intimacy plays out, looks like fellowship and prayer. Right? We cannot build a temple until we understand that we have no enemy against us. We live in peace. Why is the fruit of the Spirit peace? What does Solomon say he had before he could build it? Peace on all sides. Can I, can I say it like this? If we could come together as a people and actually believe there is no fight, community prayer on Monday, house gathering prayers, prayers here, there is no fight. We've already won. So it's no longer trying to fight the enemy. It's, Lord, show us what you want us to walk into. I, I really believe that that is strategic. One of the foreign occupants is we're fighting battles that are already won. It's, Lord, what do you want next? Where do you want us to go? I actually believe I have victory in Jesus and there is no more fight. Well, that's easy for you to say, Kyle. You don't fight. I have things that try to posture themselves as fights all the time. Health, medical, you name it. And you know what? Every time it loses. Mm -hmm. The enemy tried to take me out before I was even born. And you know what? He lost. Right? There is a plan over all of your lives to do something incredible for the kingdom of God. Don't give more glory to a fake fight. Start believing who you are in Christ. See, when you pray, it shifts your focus from the battle to the finish line. Let me read Philippians 4, 8 through 9. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things things. It doesn't say meditate on the fight. It doesn't say meditate on the things coming against you. It's meditate on, it, in other words, shift your focus to the good stuff and get it off of the bad. Amen. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. You know what meditate means? Talk to yourself. <laughs> yes, sir. See, meditation is not a new age concept. It's a biblical concept. Meditate on these things. Tell yourself and speak about the things of God that you desire and speak about the good things of God. I believe a lot of times, here's some practical 
Your prayer time should not be 10 minutes of silence. There is a meditation part of prayer. Whether you want to do it out loud or to yourself, you need to talk. Not just, God, I worship you and I love you. It's not just that. It's you are going to meditate on things that are good. God, thank you for this. Thank you for that. Thank you for this. God, you are so good here. Wow, God, thank you for that breakthrough. Wow, God, thank you for this. Instead of focusing all your time and energy on all the stuff that CNN and Fox and all the news stations try to get you to focus on, thank you for this. He says meditate on these things. It will bring you above a false battle and you will start to embrace an unseen victory. Because all of a sudden, you start to experience peace in the middle of what you call warfare. When you do that, you, the temple, are ready to be built even more and in such a way that you're ready to house the victory. If you embrace defeat, nothing can be built. It can only be built when warfare is ceased. 1 Timothy 1, 18-20. Timothy, my son, here are my instructions for you. Based on the prophetic words spoken about you earlier, may they help you fight well in the Lord's battles. Now watch this. Cling to your faith in Christ. Keep your conscience clear. For some people have deliberately violated their consciousness, and as a result, their faith has been shipwrecked. In other words, do not violate your conscious thoughts with lies. Because when you start to believe the lies over the victory, you will be shipwrecked. Because nothing can be, align your thoughts with heavenly realities. The Lord is with me even when you feel alone. If you ever know someone that, that battles with suicidal thoughts, this is how you pour into them. You need to teach them how to, to embrace good things in the middle of bad things. You need to teach them that the Lord is with them when they feel the most alone. You need to remind them that they're never alone. You want to get through the battles of your day-to-day workplace? Stop complaining about the environment, and as they said in prayer today, start setting the thermostat. I'm, I'm in a horrible place. Well, you were sent there to make it heavenly. So who's failing, them or you? Let me, and let me be clear what, what that looks like. It doesn't always mean the workplace is going to change. But what does change is when you walk in, no matter how much they pro- try to put you down, for some reason you are always, I have peace in the middle of this hell. Is that okay? I said, I said hell in the right way. I've got peace in it. Peace in the midst of the storm. You you, you ever notice that part of the storm when Jesus rebuked the wind and the waves? Before that, Jesus was sleeping. Why was he sleeping? He didn't need the storm to pass to have peace. (laughs) Okay. So watch what Timothy does in in chapter 2, verse 1. I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them. Intercede on their behalf. Give them thank, give thanks for them. All people. He's not talking about just Christians right now. 
the ones you like, the ones you don't like, the presidents you like, the presidents that are not so great. <laughs> and in your prayer life, there should be praise. Giving thanks to God, not just for what you have, but for the people he asked you to pray for. There is a glory in them that you should want to see revealed. How do I pray for someone I don't like? My prayer is to see the version of them that I will. I'll never love them. Well, then you've got a foreign occupant. <laughs> you want to know how you can forgive the person that did you wrong? Get the foreign occupant called bitterness and revenge out of your system. And you'll start to see them differently. There should be praise, but there should also be an ask. Do you ask God? Or are you working in a false humility thinking that you are not worthy enough to ask him? He made you worthy enough to ask him. John 14, whatever you ask in my name, I'll do it. Stop thinking that you're being overly burdensome to God. He's God. <laughs> ask, ask, and ask again. There should be intercession. Do you ask only for you? Or do you step in on behalf of, of others? That close family member or friend that is far from God, do you, do you cry that they're not saved? Or do you intercede, Holy Spirit, get involved in their mind right now? Holy Spirit, whatever they're doing, would you cause them to be blind to what they're doing and only see as to what they should be? Intercession involves taking hold of God's will and refusing to let go until it comes to pass. And can I just say this? There is no such thing in the Bible as a gift of intercession. We're all called to do it. There, well, I don't have that gift. Neither do I. I have a call. <laughs> Every single one of us are called to intercede on some degree. Now, some go to a very intentional level with it. But we're all called to intercede at some point. I'm asking you, is your prayer life full of what you need or have you ever prayed on behalf of someone that didn't even ask you for the prayer? Not just, hey, can you pray for my family? But like, when was the last time you interceded for someone because they are not bold enough to step in? Jesus didn't need permission from Lazarus to raise him from the dead. And, <laughs> and people who are not understanding who God is do not need your permission to pray for a whale, to swallow them up for a Holy Ghost encounter. <laughs> Can I be honest with you? And I'm not trying to pick a fight, so just hear me out. That's how I pray for our president. Lord, let a Holy Ghost fish swallow up that man and one day when he wakes up, people will see the most holy man on the face of the planet and will eat our words about the wrong man in the, in the office. I don't know if that will ever happen, but I will not let go of it. Is that okay? It, pray on behalf of all people. <laughs> right? Pray for leaders. As a matter of fact, we're getting into that. 
Look at verses 2 through 8 of 1 Timothy 2. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority. Pray for me. Can I say that again? Pray for me. I need your prayers more than your coffee. You, 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 like, I, I want to build a relationship with every person in this house. I truly do. Anyone that knows me can vouch for that. I, I will make a place for you to meet you, to get to know you, because my heart is to see you come alive in Christ. I want to see your gifts. I want to see your dreams. I want to see everything that God's put in you come forth. That's my heart. I, I will put everything on hold to see that happen. But hear me out. I need your prayers, too, because as the head of this house, you don't know the battles that I have to go through. Intercede on my behalf. It says, pray for all in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and, and dignity. Wouldn't y'all love to live a quiet, peaceful life in the name of Jesus? This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. If anyone ever tells you there's only certain people predestined for salvation, read this. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. He wants everyone to be saved. Verse 5, there is one God, one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for who? Everyone. This is the message God gave to the world at just the right time. I've been chosen as a preacher and apostle to teach the Gentiles this message about faith and truth. I'm not exaggerating. I'm just telling you the truth. In every place of worship, I want men to pray with holy hands lifted to God, free from anger and controversy. You, you know what's a foreign occupant to the church? It's not a sin to be anger. But I believe it is a foreign occupant to let anger become part of culture. It says Jesus was angry when he went in and flipped the tables. But he didn't stay in anger. Pray. When you pray, pray free from anger and controversy. Deal with your anger before you start praying. Because you have more authority in your voice than you realize. Your prayers and hands are to be holy. You know what holy means? Set apart. Set apart from what? How the situation made you feel. Pray set apart from the thing that angered you. Pray for your leaders set apart from their controversial beliefs. Set apart from the situation and pray with set apart hands. No matter if I agree with you or not, I am praying on your behalf. I am praying for you. I am praying for breakthrough. Maybe that's perhaps why Jesus prayed for the very ones crucifying him. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And Jesus prays this in John chapter 17, and this is what I'm closing with tonight. I am praying, Jesus now, I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through this message. Did you hear that? Jesus just said that he's praying this over you. I pray that they will be all one, just as you and I are one, as you're in me, Father, and I'm in you. May they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me. Y'all hear that? Jesus says, I have given the church the same glory that the Father gave me so that they may be one. I am in them. You are in me. 
May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that they love them as much as you love me. Listen to that. He says, you want to know the best evangelism tool when a church is actually unified? Because it's so set apart from the world. You think about everything in the world. It's marked by one word, division. Everyone's divided over something. He says, you want to be set apart? Be so unified that they see me in your unity. Father, verse 24, I want these whom you've given me to be with me where I am. Then they can see all the glory you gave me because you loved me even before the world began. What did he pray? That we would be unified together with God. And this unity, the fruit of it, will be a new glory in the temple, in the people of God. And this glory will be greater than anything we've ever seen. Anything. I wholeheartedly believe if we start driving out the foreign objects in our lives and start coming together as a people, we would see stuff that we would not be able to contain in this building, the people that will come because it's so set apart and different. And you know what will happen with that day? When we, when, when we experience such a unity and such an outpouring that the building cannot be contained, that'll be the day where we have to shift to Forsyth Park. But, but that can't be built until all the enemy is under our feet. Right? Something I want to point out in verse 24. Can you throw that up there, Joe? Verse 24. Father, I want these whom you have given me to be with me where I am. Then they can see all the glory you gave me because you loved me even before the world began. I want these people to be with me where I am. He's talking about heaven, right? But he wasn't in heaven yet. He was speaking this not from heaven, not through a prophet. He was speaking this with the people. He wasn't in heaven, but he understood he was already seated in heavenly places. And if we will realize where we are seated in heavenly places, everything will change. Foreign objects to heaven will be rejected from our lives because we have a personal revelation of our proper domain. You see, it's no longer about get the foreign stuff out so that you can be good. It's realize how good you are so that the foreign stuff can't stay. Prayer aligns with seated position in heaven so that you can respond in such a way that brings heaven to earth. Or, let me say it like this, bring your heavenly home into an earth experience. What does heavenly home look like? In the midst of all this chaos, I've got peace, love, joy, self-control. I've got patience. I've got gentleness. I've got all this stuff. When all the circumstances tell me I should act differently, for some reason, I look like I'm seated. You know how much peace Jesus has? It says when he went to heaven, he did what? Sat down. That's where we should be. Not be moved, not shaken. But understand that we, too, are actually seated. I don't have a devil to fight. The devil has to submit to my authority. 
You, you, you want to go back to Job, the thing we don't talk about with Job? We always talk about how the enemy got permission to mess with Job from God, and he messed up Job's life. You want to know why God gave the enemy permission? Because God know, knew in that fight who had the authority to put the enemy under his feet. Who? Job. Foreign things will be driven away, and his glory will be revealed. I encourage you tonight as you leave, put the enemy under your feet. Align your prayer life. Find someone to start interceding for and will begin to become the temple, the house, where a new glory will be poured out and revealed. There is a shaking coming. So, Lord, I say, shake out the foreign occupants. Let's stand. Can we just say that together? God, let's say it together. God, shake out the foreign occupants. Lord, we want to be a people that are only defined not by the things of this world, but where we are seated with you in heavenly places. Lord, we are no longer getting caught up in a former glory. We want to see new. We want to see what you, we want to see the, you dwelling in our midst in a way we've never seen before. So tonight as we leave here, God, show us the foreign occupants so that we can become a people that walk in a new glory that will bring people into this place because they will see a beacon of light in the city. You. In Jesus' name we pray, everybody said. Amen. Amen.